Hello, Edgar. Hello, Gregoire. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm doing pretty well, thank you. So, Edgar, do you know that you're not going to be present in the coming podcast? I can foresee that in the future. <laughs> yes, you're not going to be there. Because I am not. Because the day we recorded, uh -huh. you were not available. Correct. So today you guys will be offered a discussion between myself and Tenil Blair Neff on building one's own practice. We were supposed to have Edgar with us, but I had to attend to one of my patients. Yes. We decided to keep the discussion between Tenil and myself. And after that, you will have a follow-up with Edgar and myself talking about what Edgar wants to add mm -hmm. to give your input on the discussion. Yeah, this is what we'll do. And one thing I want to be more specific about before everybody starts listening to the second discussion with Tineel mm -hmm. is about the American system of in and out of network because it might seem obvious to our American listeners but it might not to our international ones and so a quick idea of it because it's much more complicated than what I'm going to describe but in the US you have mostly privatized health insurance and when you subscribe yearly to a plan depending on the plan you will have the possibility to see people in network or out of network and it means that people in network are clinicians who contracted with the said insurance and you have also people who are out of network means that they do not contract with one or any specific insurance mm -hmm. and depending on your plan you will be reimbursed for one or the other or both so it implies very different choices for a clinician Because if you agree to contract with an insurance as a clinician, you have you have paid a certain fee, you receive people directly from the insurance. If you're not and you stay out of network, you are not being referred patients by any insurance. You have to do it yourself. And patients might not be able to be reimbursed. And among other things, those are the main choices. Very complex system and uh, it requires to juggle a lot of different parts of a system meaning both the patient and the clinician will have to agree upon a fee if the patient is out of network. And if the clinician is in network, then the fee is established by the insurance company. And the clinician has no say in that. And in fact, the patient doesn't have a say either. There might be uh, equivalent systems elsewhere and uh, some question raised by this system might also be questions that will find an echo in other people who are not, do not practice in the US. Without further ado, my name is Grégoire Pierre. And this is Edgar Francisco Danielson. Welcome to Discussions on Psychoanalysis. Last time, we were just talking about how you, Tenil, produced some work to explain what psychoanalysis is to your patients. So I was thinking, what advice could we give to people who want to create their own profile, their own website? What do we think are informations we want to share, we should share? What was your thought process around that? I really wanted to give patients a feel of who I am as a therapist and sort of what to expect when they come into my office. So I tried to make sure that the tone of all my written materials were kind of in the way that I would talk. Mm -hmm. I don't want there to be a big difference between what's written on my profile or on my digital face and who I am in real life so that patients would get an accurate feel of what therapy would be like with me from whatever I wrote. You felt like you had to do something different with your patients in New York and those in misery? Yeah, I think in New York, there's more of an understanding of psychoanalysis, psychotherapy. 
And here, there's not the same level of knowledge about psychoanalytic psychotherapy and the difference between even psychiatry, psychology, all the various mental health professions. Most people don't really understand the difference between a counselor and a psychologist. So I think there was a lot of education involved in my consultations and in my written material. You put that in your profile? You put that on your website? On my website, I get very detailed about what to expect and sort of what I think the function of psychoanalytic psychotherapy is. And I try to be very detailed. I don't know that people read it always, <laughs> but <Yeah. laughs> it's there for them if they'd like it. <laughs> yeah. What about you, Gregoire? How did you approach this with your profile and things like that? I try to pay attention to the fact that my writing would connect with how people most likely will experience me, which I found to be a difficult exercise. It's easier for me to talk to people. I get a better sense of their reaction. I can adjust to that. In writing, I find it very difficult because you never know exactly the emotional state in which the person is going to read. So I focused on what are my values, the core values I want to share, you don't want to write something too long. And I found that in the writing, the question of how to work with my own conflicts around what I'm offering, they come up. Mm -hmm. You have to decide how much you want to share with your audience about it. In some ways, you might want to share something about how you perceive yourself, but how much think that's really something people have to adjust. My sense is that patients are not your friends. They don't expect to see a friend, but they do expect to see a human being. Or at least I want people like that. I think that's also the thing, is that when you write about your profile, you also determine in silence, I would say, who you want to see. The values you're going to express are certainly going to interfere in the way people decide whether or not to see you. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I think that's a really good point. I tend to attract people that are very creative, like a lot of artists, musicians. And part of that is because I'm an art therapist. But I think also somehow that comes across that I enjoy working with those patients in my profile. Mm -hmm. I put a lot of emphasis on creativity and free association and the unconscious, which I think are all things that really appeal to writers and artists, musicians. And so I end up with a lot of those folks in my practice. Mm -hmm. I do agree with what you were saying about how difficult it is to write about yourself in a profile in a way that is warm and connected and also not like a friend, right? Like a professional offering a really invaluable service. And I think there's, you know, sometimes you'll look at a, another therapist profile and they'll be divulging a lot of very personal information. And that didn't feel right to me. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, it is really important to kind of get a sense of who this person is as a professional. It's not easy to write that. It's a fine line. Yeah. It reminds me of a suggestion I heard back in the days where I was still spending a lot of time in the, in the building of NPAP, that how do you create your website and the content of it? We just focus on what we write, but some people are concerned about the illustrations. I know that I decided consciously to only put very simple pictures. Mm -hmm. There is a main picture with a close-up of a river and other pictures are just my face and some pictures of my office. It was a really conscious choice on my part because I remember at NPAP people advising to put smiling people yeah. with nice scenery, beautiful trees or whatever. And the argument was people want to see nice things and they will be attracted to nice things and then they will call you. It can be a coherent argument if you consider that you're just a product. Yeah. The downside with that, thinking as an advice for people who are considering starting their own practice, is that you will offer a perception of yourself that will be deceiving. You might be very able to deal with that. You might be very comfortable having people come to your office, realize that, well, it was just a show and the real work is very different and you are offering a very different perspective. You might not. And I think that's a choice we have to make as clinicians because we have to advertise our practice mm -hmm. and how is really a professional stand. Yeah. No, that's a really important point that you're making because now that I think about it, I was very careful of the images I chose and and it does have sort of a feel. I took images inside my own office of the artwork in my office and they're all black and white, no color. They're not happy. <laughs> So. Okay. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> Welcome to my office. <laughs> 
But they're creative. They're artistically done, but they are very realistic portraits of different things I have in my office. And one of the things that was really important to me in my office was that the presence of darkness and light in the choices that I made in decorating my office. So I have a lot of artwork that's in the office that's very provocative or emotionally based. And then I have some things that are joyous and make you smile. But there's a mix of all those things because I want people to bring all of themselves into the office. And my website is similar in the sense that maybe it tends a little on the darker end of things, but I wanted that sense visually for my clients, the sense that all of them is welcome, not just the happy parts or the sunshine and rainbows. It's helpful for the patient to know that even the darker parts of themselves will be accepted, even if I'm smiling in my profile picture for my psychology today or on my website, that there's light and dark in this office space and we will be in the presence of those and they're welcome here. I know that for the pictures I took, I paid attention that the mood would be a quiet mood. Mm -hmm. Is it good or bad? That's not really my point, but just for people who want to create their own profile or website, at least to get a sense of the value that they will display through their pictures. And this is a value I wanted to display. Yeah. Even if you come and it's going to get hefty sometime, the setting is quiet. It's okay. It won't overstimulate you. That was my intent. Yeah, and I think these little choices are so important because they also communicate who you are as a clinician to the client in a very subtle way. And thinking about this deeply, like it sounds like you did, and I certainly did too when I was creating all these things, is so important because there's really a message that you're sending without even maybe being 100% conscious of it and quiet. Like, I love that. For me, it was your darkness is welcome and this is a creative space. Those were kind of the things that were inside of me when I was planning my website and my profiles. Every patient, every person is going to be attracted to different things. I don't think there's a completely right or completely wrong way to take pictures of your office or yourself. I would say don't be too intimate. Try to have a nice frame. But even that, I think that some people might feel more comfortable if they see a crappy picture of an office. And some people might actually not feel comfortable when they see a crappy picture. Yeah. So that's why I'm, I'm saying in that sense, I don't think there's a clear wrong and right answer in the way you portray your practice and yourself. Yes, I agree. And talking about how we present oneself, maybe now let's talk about the network. Let's go more into how we get referrals. You moved from New York to Missouri. Could you talk to our audience about the differences in how to create your network or maybe the similarities that you experienced? Yeah. In New York, when I was starting my practice, my referral network in some ways was easier because I had a lot of colleagues from psychoanalytic training and colleagues from various places that I'd worked in the past that felt comfortable referring to me. I was a part of supervision group and all of the clinicians in the supervision group practiced in in the same area I practiced in. So they could trust my work. They knew who I was and I knew who they were so we could refer to each other. And I found those very helpful in terms of referral. When I moved to Missouri, I didn't know anyone. I had no colleagues. I hadn't gone to school with anyone and there weren't any supervision groups being offered where I could meet people. So I did a couple of things that I found helpful. First and foremost, I developed some relationships with some primary care physicians. And I also developed relationship with a local psychiatrist. And in a rural community, there are not a lot of primary care physicians. There are not a lot of psychiatrists. There are not even a lot of other clinicians. So connecting with those people, setting up meetings, having coffee dates and things like that, getting to know each other really went a long way in building my practice. What are the conversations like? I ask like? a lot of questions about them and ask them about, do they get a lot of people coming in with mental health needs? And then I talk to them about who they refer to and why. And, and then I also present myself to them. This is kind of how I believe about therapy. This is my experience. This is my background. And I don't do it in a job interview way because I think that's kind of off-putting. But really actually trying to develop a friendship or a connection with them so that they feel comfortable calling me up and saying, hey, I have this person or sending a referral over. 
do you experience the network as having a different quality now that you're in a rural area compared to what you had back in a big city like New York? Very different. In New York, I had my pick. I had a lot of colleagues. And if one of my patient's spouses, for instance, was looking for a therapist, I could kind of think, oh, well, Gregoire would be great for this or Edgar would be great. I'm sure he would. <laughs> you know, I have, um, you know, a, a list of people going in my head, kind of matching them. Here, yeah. it's a little bit different because there aren't any other psychoanalytic psychotherapists to refer to here. So, There aren't any? Are you really the only one? As far as I know, yeah. We're talking about how wide of an area in which you're the only psychoanalyst. Well, I know there is one person in Springfield, which is about an hour away, that is in psychoanalytic training at an institute in Kansas City, which is about three and a half hours from me. So two and a half hours from yeah. them. Oh, yeah. Okay. And what about Kansas City? Kansas City, City there's okay. a nice, thriving psychoanalytic community. And there's an institute there that trains people. And so a lot of those folks stay around there. But people come from all over the Midwest to train there and go out to different locations. I'm sorry, but isn't Kansas City in Kansas? It is half in Kansas, half in Missouri. Oh, yeah. okay. It's one of those cities that's split in two. So the river splits Kansas City in the middle, and one side is Kansas City, Kansas, and the other side is Kansas City, Missouri. Yeah. Okay. You still need to be in a quite densely populated area to find other psychologists. Yeah. You might also find people who are psychoanalytically oriented, even if they don't know it. You find only CBT and people are completely foreign to your practice. I think there are people who are utilizing psychoanalytic or psychotherapy techniques without even realizing it. Most people where I live really identify with cognitive behavioral therapy. That seems to be the predominant mode of treatment. But there are people who are open to psychodynamic way of seeing things and have some understanding of that. Just not a lot. So how do you create a network with clinicians like that? I try to get a sense of who the person is and their flexibility and intuition. Because I think there are excellent therapists in the cognitive behavioral world and all kinds of different therapies. There are really great clinicians, regardless of the technique they use. And I think that has a lot to do with attunement and emotional mm -hmm. intuition. So you can pick up a lot of that when you're meeting with somebody for coffee, just by the way they relate to you. So that helps me a lot, just meeting the people in person and talking to them and kind of getting a sense of who they are and how they relate to me helps me feel more confident referring to therapists that maybe utilize different technique or skill set for me. How about you, Gregoire? Like, you know, how did this all work out for you? I find myself in a very specific situation, so I don't know if it's going to be helpful to many people, but being a native French speaker in New York, I find myself in a very specific niche, meaning that there are not that many of us. If you go to psychology today and you look for a French-speaking clinician, you will find tons of them. But do they really speak French or do they know a little bit of French? That's the mm -hmm. question. And most of the time, they can speak French a little bit, but they're not native speakers. I was also a clinical psychologist in France. I was born in France. I grew up right there. I studied there. So people come to see me often because of the cultural aspect. People who came to see me often state that they wanted to not have to spend too much time explaining cultural references. They wanted to feel understood quicker. Is it also an illusion? It can be, yes. Because you can be French in many, many different ways. But at least it helps the transference or the connection to be created. So I didn't have to do that much in terms of networking. COVID shut off everything almost. But before that, I would go to some groups of French-speaking clinicians in New York. I got to work a little bit the first year I came to New York with a very good and very well-connected French psychologist in New York. And she would send me some referral from time to time because my fees were and still are lower than hers. And also one of my supervisors, Lee Jenkins, who was interviewed in an earlier podcast, mentioned to me that one of his supervisors at some point bought a bunch of business cards, which again, I don't <laughs> advise people to do, but he did that. And Lee practices on the Upper West Side of New York. And the guy went to all the hairdressers and gave his business card there. And apparently it was very successful. And at some point, I didn't have that many patients and I was struggling and Lee offered that alternative. I want to say that do it if you feel like you can. I couldn't. I just couldn't. <laughs> 
Like, I, I didn't have the guts to do that. Well, it's a good idea, though, right? Like, <laughs> it, it、yeah. is a good idea. I find it to be a very clever idea because you go to places where people don't care whether you're a psychologist, psychoanalyst, blah, blah, blah. You're a therapist and a place where people talk. And can, people can talk about pretty intimate things. So, yeah, it was a very good idea. I guess there are other places like that where you could give your card. I didn't really do that. I also wanted to add that in my experience, there is a lot of loss in terms of people who refer to you and how many people contact you. It's happening to me now that I'm pretty much booked all the time and I'm referring to other colleagues who speak French who are still in training. That they are not contacted back. The referral doesn't go through. Is it an experience that you、oh, have? Yes, that happens a lot. I definitely get calls from colleagues or physicians who say, I have this person, and they don't really follow through. Let's talk about the in network or out of network now that we're talking about referrals.、Mm -hmm. Because There's one way to get a lot of referrals, as we mentioned last time, is to be in network. And so, especially, I would like your input in terms also of working in a rural area.、Mm -hmm. What was your choice and why did you choose that? I chose to be in network with a small number of insurance companies. I did this in New York and I also did this in Missouri. And the reason I did this. Was a lot of the clients that I wanted to see come from a middle class or lower socioeconomic background and would not really be able to afford therapy out of pocket, not at a, the fee that I would like to charge. So, this really helped me have access to them. And, and part of that had to do with my own background and my own history and the kind of clients I saw myself seeing. So, it was helpful for me. To do that, it helped me feel like I was connecting with a value that was important to me, which was to provide services to people that might not be able to afford it out of pocket. So that was one of the reasons. The other reason is that, especially in New York, if you aren't in network with someone, they could easily just go to someone else. Right. And that happens a lot. You miss out on clients that way because, oh, you're not in network with my insurance. Okay, I'll see someone else. And that helps me build a practice in New York fairly quickly because I was in network with some of the major insurances and it got me a lot of patients. I am always in conflict with this decision, mostly because dealing with insurance companies is really hard and it takes a lot of time. So, could you give us an example? What does it mean? Oh, Like, for instance, I was in network with one insurance company and I billed them for services, and they refused to pay for this, this, and this reason. And so I made the corrections they suggested and resent the form into them. And then they said, Oh, no, you can't do it because of this. And so basically, by the end of it, it took me a year to get paid for some work that I did with one client. And it probably took me 15 to 20 hours on the phone with a machine most of the time or with various people who really didn't understand what was happening. So I ended up doing double the amount of work for a lot less money than my fee because when you get in network with an insurance company, you, you accept a lower fee. And you accept the fee they set, and that's all you can get paid. And so you're already kind of coming in at a loss. So it ended up being a big wash. And sometimes that happens with insurance companies. And, and when you're in. Oh, it happens when you're out of network too. I had a, a patient with whom the insurance with out of network option would not want to reimburse because、uh, I think they claim that the name of the patient was not on the bill. Which it was.、Yes. It was. Okay. Yes. <laughs> I was not delirious. <laughs> and there was a lot of back and forward. And they would say, oh, yeah, now it's fixed. Oh, yeah, I see, I see the bill. Yeah, of course it's fixed. Everything's going to be all right. And it took me, I think it took me two years to get through that. And now it seems to be fixed. That's an issue. Some people think that they should be in network because it's true, you have a stream of income that's very regular. Yeah. You don't need to look for patients, they come. Mm hmm. Because you're on the list, they know you're cheap, they know how much it's going to cost. Yeah. From the patient's perspective, very easy. Especially if you live in New York or Manhattan, you will need to have a lot of patients to get to the amount of income you need to have a balanced life, which、yeah. you want, because you don't want to be in a precarious situation if you want to help people. Yes. That's my consideration.、Yeah. So some people might think, okay, so I'm going to live with both worlds. 
I'm going to be in network with tons of insurance because you have to decide which insurance. You have to apply to a panel. Mm -hmm. I think their insurance have a limited amount of availability for different professions, mm -hmm. right? So something like that. Yes. Edgar should be here, but that's the thing. He's not here also because, as people know already, we are recording this before we record the opening, because he's working so much that sometimes he can't be available on the time we usually record a podcast. So that's the thing. When you are in network, if you live in a city, you're going to have to deal with a lot of patients. So you might think, I'm going to have a stream of patients, and when some of them are going to be wealthy, I'm going to say, no, you pay out of pocket. Do you think that's possible? I don't know that you can do that with the insurance companies. I think when you agree to take be on a panel, you're not allowed to charge any more than what you've agreed to charge, and you cannot bill them out of network. That's the problem. Yeah. If you do that, you will most likely lose your license. Yes. Because as soon as a patient contacts the insurance, the insurance will attack you right away. Yes. You're absolutely not allowed to do that. And so I think people should hear what you're saying, which is very important in terms of stream of income, in terms of the population you can serve. Also knowing that some people are very good in network insurance and they earn tons of money. True. It's not a direct uh, correlation. But that if you sign for a network, the problem is it's a contract and you have to obey the terms of the contract until the contract ends. And from what I remember, you can apply to get out of the contract, but you have to do that three months before the end of the contract or something like that. It's not as if you could just say, oh, February, oh, I'm actually after two months, I'm done with it. No, 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 you can't. You have to apply in September so that next January it's over. People have to take that into consideration. Of course, you're choosing against uh, out-of-network, which is a jump in the unknown. Mm -hmm. I chose that option because I could, but I really think people should be careful about it. Yes. I was very lucky to get, right away after I got my license, a few much higher fees than I would get before at NPAP. Because the stipend was, and still is, by the way, $20 a session. So this is... You, you don't remember? I remember. <laughs> yeah. So this is, you're not gonna you're not gonna make a living with that. No. So anyway, so people would pay me more than that, mm. and, and and I was happy. Yes. And that helped me uh, have confidence, and I had a structure around me that helped me to feel safe. Yeah. If you don't have that, you really have to think about it. My reasoning was, if I only ask one hundred dollar in New York. Mm -hmm. Probably maybe in misery, the fees is yeah. 100 might be, uh, is not more. what my 100 is in New York. Yeah. But if I ask just for 100, it's already more than the 80 or 90 that I would get from an insurance. Mm -hmm. And it seems like there are a bunch of people, at least in the French speaking community, who can afford 100. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where I started. Yeah, and I think it makes a lot of sense to stay out of network and work that way just in terms of stress level for clinicians. I've always gone back and forth with myself about my decision to take insurance. I still take it. And I think if I were in New York, I might not be taking it any longer. But here in Missouri, it is really important to take insurance or to keep your fee low enough that the average person can afford it. You know, like in New York, you have higher wages, higher cost of living, but also more of an understanding of the value of therapy. And so people are willing to pay more and commit to longer term. And I think here where I'm at, it's very different culturally. And what would be not very much money in New York seems like a small fortune here. I bet. Yeah. I mean, also, but also your expenses are not the same. No. When you practice in New York, because you have to have your office. Yes. You have to decide what office you're going to get. And then you have to balance how much you're going to pay. Are you going to have a window? No window? Is it going to be in a well-located area? Those questions will lead to very different fees moving from, I don't know, probably uh, 1500 a month in New York mm -hmm. to easily three, 4000 a month. Yes. I'm guessing in misery... The numbers are not the same. Not at all. The cost of living and the cost of practice is significantly less than it was in New York. My expenses to operate my private practice are not substantial. And so I'm able to survive 
and thrive on much lower fees. And that's really nice for me. I like that. It takes some of the stress and pressure off, but the cost of practice is much higher. And so you have to charge higher fees just to be sustainable. In terms of paperwork, I just want to say still that it depends on how you perceive out-of-network. I know that for some of my patients, I used to do a lot of paperwork. You still have to do a bill every month, mm -hmm. which contains a certain amount of information that we will mention on the forum so that we don't go into too much details here. And you still have to contact your insurance, especially the insurance of your patients, especially if you see your patients more than once a week. Mm -hmm. Some insurance, or in some at least some uh, plan, don't give a damn well, how many time you see your patient but some as soon as it's more than once a week they're going to ask you like what's going on like how can you justify that is your patient very sick and 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 i think that this is where it becomes tricky with out of network is that they will tell you is your patient improving it's a lose-lose game mm -hmm. because if your patient improved hey you don't need to see the patient twice a week mm -hmm. If the patient did not improve, obviously it doesn't work, so you shouldn't see your patient twice a week. Yeah. So as soon as you reach that point, eh, yeah. you got to talk to your patients about how they're going to pay and how they're going to afford or seeing you twice a week or uh, you're going to discuss the fees. Yeah, the insurance companies in network and out of network, they want to tell you what they think is the most effective number of sessions that you can have. And if you exceed what they think is necessary or medically necessary, which is their term, then they will say no more. It's not a magical solution. No, no, it isn't. And it does create a lot of headache. And I'm not painting a beautiful picture of it, but I think maybe what I'm portraying is the conflict around it because I do it, but it's not an easy thing to do. And it also provides me a little bit of stability that I might not have otherwise. Hmm. A last thing about out-of-network and in-network is the question of how to move from one to another. It's easy to move in-network. Just move in-network and you apply to a panel and if it works, you're in. But to move out of in-network, Edgar is not here with us to talk about it, but it seems like a difficult thing to do because you... and. I would welcome people in our audience who, who went through that. Of course, this is an American business. In France, it's different. It's, if you're a psychologist, you, you're not in network at all. You're not reimbursed by the state at all. And I'm guessing it's probably the same in other uh, countries because only medical doctors can be uh, are usually reimbursed and so psychiatrists. But it seems like when you're in network to move to out of network, it's a very difficult thing to do because your patient tell is used to being in network. They're used to paying you a certain fee. And the fees, as we discussed it in the first podcast, are highly connected to your, the quality of your attachment to your therapist. So moving from one way to pay to another, it's not just an administrative thing. And you might lose a lot of your patients. It's not just the fact that they don't have enough money, but the fact that they don't want that kind of relationship with you. And so it might put you in a very difficult spot at some point. So when you start being in network, you should think also in terms of at least in middle to long terms, not just short term, because you put yourself in a position. You have to be somewhat strategic, I think. Yeah, I agree. Let's talk about how to find your location. Daniel, how was it for you? You talked already about your location in New York mm -hmm. in the first podcast. How was it in Missouri? What did you take into consideration to find your location? Well, in Missouri, because I was kind of starting all over again. And when I moved here, I had a, a young baby. And so I didn't really want to be working a whole lot. So I actually looked for a temporary situation. And I found a corporate office rental situation. So it's like a big conglomerate with lots of different businesses in it. And you could rent a small office space very cheaply. And so I was able to find that. And as my child got older and started to separation individuation period and mm -hmm. and we got yeah, some more we heard about that <laughs> yes we get some more space i started taking on more clients and then the space started to feel really cramped and cold and not necessarily what i wanted so i looked around and i found an empty building in missouri in the community i lived and it was very inexpensive rent and i said yes and it's got windows a building yeah it's a building You have a building for yourself? It's a small building and there's a, a hair salon on one side and then me on the other. And we have our own parking lot. A hair salon. We're going back there. Yes, we are. <laughs> 
<laughs> they can go get their hair done and then come talk to me. And then they come to see you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Um, it's interesting because in New York, you could find office spaces that are already built out, mm -hmm. you know, in the, about the right size for a private practice. In Missouri, it's like the opposite. All the spaces that are available are huge and way more than what a private practitioner would need to operate. So you kind of are in this position, either you are lucky enough to find a small office like I did, or you're going to have to get a big space and find a bunch of other clinicians to go in on it with you to have the right kind of space. And did you consider the location of your office in terms of who you can see, how and when? Because I know that in Manhattan, especially, where you locate your office is very important. Are you going to locate it near a school, near a university, in a business area, near subways? The means of transportation are very important. They are very important also in terms of the population you want to see. I'm downtown, I guess, on 30th Street, um, I guess, downtown. Uh, but it's a very different population if I go, maybe if I try to have a, an office on Fifth Avenue or on Park Avenue. Did you have those considerations also in a rural area where people, I guess, don't use that much uh, mass transportation? There was some consideration of perception. So where you're located in town in a rural community has to do with maybe how people perceive you. So here in this community, there's like what they call the medical mile. And it's like this one strip of road that has all the medical facilities, like the doctor's offices and eye clinics and all that stuff. And I felt like that would be a great place for me. There's the downtown area which is really cute and would be awesome to have a little space down there, but the traffic is terrible. So you have to think about traffic and parking. And also, is somebody's car going to be seen in front of my office? And will that mean that somebody knows they're in therapy with me? Because in a small town, there's not as much autonomy or anonymity. I run into my clients at the grocery store. Oh, you do? Oh, yeah, everywhere. They cut me off in traffic sometimes. I mean, it just, it's small. Man, and transference. <laughs> yes. So... You need you to know, analyze that. <laughs> yeah, so I had to find some place private that yeah. they could park in my, you know, in front of my office space and not be nervous that somebody would see them there. And also something that was in line with the perception of therapy is a medical profession and I felt like it was good for me to be on medical row. And then also traffic. Are my patients going to have to deal with traffic coming and going? So it was very very different from in New York. Like you said, there's neighborhoods or communities you want to be in and you get a different population wherever you choose to be. But here it was, everybody drives. So you have to find a place that will symbolize what you do. Yes. Edgar, here we are now. Yes. You took the time to listen to the discussion I had with Daniel. Yeah. So could you tell us what caught your attention? I could mention a few things that caught my attention, mostly because they resonate with my own practice. Um, one of them is what kind of patients do we attract into our practices? Yes. It seems that Tenille's attract creative people in the arts, and she says that uh, probably that's connected because she's an art therapist as well. The thing is, in terms of my practice, a large percentage of my practice are people who uh, in the generation of the millennials, and I have no clue why they come to me. Millennials, definition? People who are from the 20 plus to 40. They were born between 1981 and 1996 or so. So I, it seems that my practice attracts a large percentage of millennials, so people who are in the early 20s to 40, but I have no idea why that's the case. And I think to tie to another thing that you and Tanila were talking about, location, I have a hunch that it's connected to the fact that a lot of tech companies around my area, the location of... Uh, my office is located nearby Penn Station in New York City, and there are many technological industries in the area. And as you noted, and we have talked about before, I am in network with a couple of health insurance companies. So I think there is a correlation between tech companies, health insurance provided by those tech companies, and the location of my office. And that is what brings into my office a group of people who are in their early 20s to 40. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what I reason. 
you and I used to share an office next to each other, literally next to each other. Literally. Now you moved mm -hmm. a few blocks away. Mm -hmm. So I'm somewhat in the same area as you, and I don't have that kind of people. But you are not in network. Indeed, I want to emphasize that if there's something, it's the combination of the two. I think you're right. And something that calls my attention is that, for example, I have patients who are French-speaking and they decided to work with me. Too not cheap to come to see me. <laughs> <laughs> so why, instead of looking for someone who speaks their language, and it's because they have health insurance and they feel more comfortable paying less, meaning a copay. And you know what? Yeah. I wonder if it's also not just a question of nationality or language, it's also an attitude, is that I think people who come to see me are people who go online and they look for a French psychologist, New York. Yeah. And they see me. Uh, they see a, a few other people, but they see me. I'm assuming people who come see you don't do that research. They go on their insurance website, they Correct. look at someone nearby, and they don't even might not even think about whether no. or not they should see someone in their own language. Because they have fluency in English, therefore they don't connect one thing with the other. I agree with you. There might be speaking in our native language may allow us to access things that otherwise are not in our reach. There's a delay. I know it's just me recording those podcasts. I know that when I speak, as I speak in English in those podcasts, to be understood by a broader audience, there is a delay for me. Mm -hmm. I don't speak English as fast. My ideas need to be somewhat translated. They are simplified. Sometimes English express some specific things that the French language doesn't express, or at least the French language I know does not express. Mm -hmm. But there is a delay. There is a spontaneity that you lose, that at least, at least I lose mm -hmm. when I speak English. And I'm mm -hmm. confident that I'm not the only one. Mm -hmm. But as you said, it's... People for whom this is not the point. Yeah. And I agree with you in terms of where do people look for information? If they have a health insurance plan, they will look into the directory of the health insurance. And then they go to my website and they read about me. And what do they see on your website? Well, that's another point that I wanted to bring up in regards to what you and Tenil were talking about. The other experience I've had is that a handful of times people come to me because they think that I'm Jungian. And they see... And you're going to pretend you don't know why. And uh, let me clarify this. Uh, <laughs> uh -huh. they, they say, I looked into your website and I would like to work with a Jungian. And I said, but I'm not Jungian. And there is nothing in my website. <laughs> Oh, you're a liar. <laughs> no, it's look at my website. Oh, and I looked at your website. Yeah. There is there's something, uh, there's something spiritual uh, about it. There's nothing people... spiritual about it. Oh, really? Uh, this, the, you you <laughs> removed the picture of the, the statue? That is not there. It's not there anymore? I don't know. Is it there? I don't know. <laughs> well, looking. <laughs> and now I'm looking at, into the website. I remember a version of your website. I uh -huh. haven't been to your website in a while, but I remember mm -hmm. a version. It certainly emphasize some... It's a statue of a yeah, woman the, looking... With the lights next to it. Like there's something... There's something about the it. mood that I think <laughs> indicates a, a sense of spirituality that mm -hmm. I believe is certainly more represented in Jungian analyst than in Forgen. I don't think it's that. No, I'm checking my my own website. No, this that that picture is not <laughs> is there. Is this my creation? Uh, no, no, no. I think that picture was there at some point. Yeah. It uh, was a statue. It was art. There is a quote in my website that says, every difficulty in life presents us with an opportunity to turn inward and to invoke our own inner resources. Here we go. And people <laughs> confuse that with Jung when in yes. fact it's, well, I don't know how to pronounce this in English, but in Spanish it's epitecto. It's a Greek, it's a Greek philosopher. It has nothing to do with Jung. Well, maybe Jung read him. Uh, who knows? It's a spirituality. 
that is uh, probably often not present in uh, Freudian analysts or other of uh, this branch of analysts. To say something like to call our inner resources, in fact, what I'm talking about is ego strength. Uh, what I'm talking yes, about. Yes, but you don't talk about. You don't use the term ego strength. Of course not. How I can uh, use that in my website? Because I well, need. You can use that. You just type it. <laughs> <laughs> no, because then. What question is that? Because as Tenil said, it's important for the patient that when they read what we write and they come into the office that it aligns one thing with the other. I don't talk about ego strength to my patients. It's completely fine with me. But what okay. I'm pointing out mm -hmm. for and especially for our audience is that. It's a choice we make. It is, correct. And if one were to put the terms ego strength in their website, mm -hmm. it would clearly indicate something else than what you just mentioned. Yeah. In that sense, I was reminded, as I was listening to you and now in our conversation, I was reminded of Lowell's perspective that, first, that there is no relationship without transference. He explicitly says that we're always immersed in the transferential experience. And second, that, that people are looking for someone who is like us, but that there might be some relatedness. Yes. And we consciously and unconsciously choose what to offer in our websites or other materials that says something and people relate to us through that something. You know about that, I have a quote in my website, I think just one, from Winnicott. From Winnicott, yes. Yes. I do remember. How surprising. It's, well, how it's, often do you go to my website? <laughs> <laughs> Every day, I hope. Uh, no. All of these clicks that increase your your website it's me i i'm doing oh. <laughs> to help <laughs> now you. i know <laughs> things make sense <laughs> where you quote case, winnicott is a disaster is, um, not to be found yes exactly it's a pleasure to be hidden it's a disaster not to be found mm -hmm. and the funny thing to me is that m i think 100 of the people who came to see me because of that quote Mm -hmm. never came back. <laughs> so they don't want to be found. <laughs> they really don't want to be found. But they came. It's, it's really, I, I can't think of an example of someone coming and stating, I came because, and some people did, really came because of this quote. It really spoke to me. We had one session and then they <laughs> that never showed up again. Yes. <laughs> I guess it really did speak to them. And I guess it wasn't the time. It was not the time. They didn't want to be found. Yeah, uh, but they knew that someone <laughs> was looking for them and maybe that was enough. If I yes. could be helpful that way, mm -hmm. it's fine with me. Um. You were making a comparison and contrast with Tenille in terms of your patients tend to be, well, I don't know the proportion, but you have a, a lot of French-speaking people in your practice. Yeah, about 60% or something. Yeah. Okay, so it made me think that I don't have a large percentage of people who are Spanish-speaking. And there's a cultural difference here. I think mm -hmm. we have talked about the fact that in France, mental health services are more mainstream than in my country of origin, Puerto Rico, where, where mental health services are stigmatized. In fact, the Spanish-speaking patients I have and have had are from places like South America, Argentina and Chile and, and other places in Mexico, in North America, where there is a tradition that in other Spanish-speaking countries we don't find. So that's another difference. If I listen to mm -hmm. you correctly, besides Puerto Rico, every other Spanish-speaking country do have a healthcare tradition. No, no, it's not that clear-cut. It's not that clear-cut? Okay. There are people, for example, Argentina has a very strong psychoanalytic tradition in Uruguay, Chile, and perhaps also in some parts of Mexico as well, and Spain. But I don't hear much from other countries, other Spanish-speaking countries. So Puerto Rico and other uh, Spanish-speaking countries seem to, there seems to be some stigma connected to mental health services. And that impacts then, of course, the population I see, because they might be reluctant to be in psychotherapy. Yes, yeah, so you can share the language, but maybe not as much the cultural aspects, uh, cultural references of... 
There is a reluctance to reaching out, not to me, to any mental health practitioner. Do you know that we have a big community from Puerto Rico in New York or New Jersey? Yes, there is a large community of Puerto Ricans living in, in New York. So big, there was a big movement from the island towards uh, New York in the 40s, 50s and 60s. And so your hypothesis is that the stigma traveled with them? Generationally. And that, yeah, and yeah. that they didn't absorb maybe the New York yeah. uh, uh, mood that usually goes with doing therapy as not a stigma. Mm -hmm. And there might be other intersections here connected with class, but I guess that's something that it needs to be researched. I don't know for sure. Just for our audience, food for thought in terms of where they should decide to work. What do you have in mind in terms of class, in addition to what we said about maybe a language, a culture? You know, like we're talking about helping people decide to have thoughts about how they should start working. That's a very important question that needs to, in fact, the way we answer the question is connected to our own personal dynamics. So what do we want to accomplish as psychoanalysts or as individuals doing psychoanalysis, being a professional psychoanalyst within ourselves? What space is dedicated to serving other communities? In what ways are we going to balance our needs for having a certain quality of life and at the same time provide services to people who might not have the resources to pay some of our fees? So people navigate this in different ways. They make a decision. I know some analysts who have made a decision to have their offices in communities that are poor. And they serve those communities. And, of course, the frame will be different. And when I say frame, the fee structure will be completely different. It will have to be, yes. It has to be completely different. And that is a decision that those analysts have made. And it reminds me of Patricia Herovici when she says that sometimes some psychoanalysts, mainstream psychoanalysts, It's almost like they have expressed that the poor cannot afford an unconscious, which is not true. I don't remember who would mention that, but I remember when during my training in France, there were some glance of that mm -hmm. among some older analysts. Mm -hmm. And I always thought it was such a weird statement. I think it's based on this idea, the separation of reality and fantasy. I'm making an assumption here about this, but I think some analysts believe that if someone is poor, they are struggling to survive, and therefore that is what will have the primacy of their energy, meaning dealing with the reality. So they will prioritize that to a default. I don't think that's true. I think that everybody has an unconscious And therefore, the way we navigate reality and fantasy means that the poor, the marginalized, the underserved require also the support of our profession. And the frame will change, of course, in terms of how, how we are going to structure our fees, where are we locating our offices, so on and so forth. What I could say about that from my experience working in, uh, yeah, I guess it was the most poor mm -hmm. city in France per capita, mm -hmm. Sarcelles in the north of Paris, is that there will be enough people interested to fill up a practice, mm -hmm. no problem. But what you will experience, which might be very, which is annoying, but especially if you're used to working in a very comfy place, is that there is insecurity in, in terms of frequency and in terms of ability to attend a session yes. at the set time. Mm -hmm. Being poor often means that, yes, you will have other priorities and that if you have to get some money at 3 p.m. on Friday instead of going to your therapy session, you might just not go to your therapy session. Mm -hmm. And it does require a lot more flexibility, which is very tiring. Mm-hmm to maintain uh, an emotional connection with people you don't know you're going to see, and when, in which state, it is a lot more difficult on the part of the analyst. 
But is there a need? Oh, yes, there is a need. Yes. There's no problem about that.、Um, just pops up in my mind, and it, it happened to me only once, and I was kind of stunned by that. So I was offering some free sessions、uh, in, a mm-hmm. in a neighborhood association, so in Sarcel. And the head of the association was, I mean, leading people to me, and they were. And so I. In this small office, which is a, a room from an apartment,、uh, basically.、Mm-hmm. And here comes this、uh, woman, probably 25, something, with her two kids. And the little girl, who's probably like five or six. And I will never see them again. But the little girl enters with her mother and her little brother. And then the little girl asks me, So, are you a psychologist? I said,、uh, Yes. And then she exhales, being like,、mm-hmm. Ah, I have my psychologist. Oh, wow. <laughs> Or in, maybe in better English, I have my own psychologist. J'ai mon psychologue. And yeah, very moving. And very moving. I think very, clearly, for this little, I, I guess she was five or six years old,、mm. there was a need to have a space. But、uh, anyway, the mother was.、Uh, In such turmoil, and they never came back. Yeah, that's、uh, too bad. It happens more frequently. I was talking about earlier about patients who show up and never come back、uh, in sufficiently well off neighborhoods, but it happens more frequently, certainly, when you、uh, yeah. are in poor neighborhoods. Yeah. But yeah, this idea that poor people don't have unconscious is just insane.、Mm-hmm. Just to say, it's like you make being poor something of a biological characteristic. Almost sounds like that. It reminds me of do、uh, native Indians have a soul? You know, the Valladolid trial? Ah, yes. At the end, well, they do have a soul. Well, but who fucking cares? Okay,、mm-hmm. slavery. Bye, next.、Mm. <laughs> you know, when you really want to get rid of your dog, etc. I think that's what I have about the conversation you and Tanil had. I don't have any disagreement, but more of a contrast. It's not only about symptom relief, but more. Are you referring to、uh, thinking psychoanalysis not in just in terms of psychotherapy, but trying to understand the internal dynamic? I don't think we disagreed with that. I'm not sure exactly why I wrote this note. Maybe it's connected to the idea of why people come to psychotherapy where Tanil lives, why people come to therapy where we are located. I have a large percentage of people who come to therapy because they want to get to know themselves better. Someone saying, I have symptoms, either I'm depressed or anxious or this or that, or conversion symptoms or whatever. Of course, in our practices, we find those too. But I, I have a you know, percentage of people who are here not because they are in a crisis, they are here because they want to get to understand themselves better, which is always very nice to hear for a psychoanalyst, you know, at least for me. Do you think it has anything to do with how you、um, advertise yourself? Uh, it could be connected to this idea of looking into the inner world and finding our own resources there. So, it might be connected to that statement. I'm asking because I think it could be interesting for people who start their practice、mm-hmm. to really, I mean, we said that before, but I'm going to say it again to really think carefully,、uh, not to be afraid, but. About what they're going to say, what they're going to express on their website,、yes. on their profile. Yeah. Because it will have a major impact.、Yeah. And just as a technique, I would add that the first few lines are extremely important.、Mm-hmm. And don't trust what Psychology Today asks you to do.、Uh, you see way too many websites that start exactly the same way because people follow exactly the same、uh, templates. Yeah,、mm-hmm. Psychology Today's offered template. Please don't do that.、Mm-hmm. I mean, to all my colleagues, it looks very weird.、Mm-hmm. You sh- should feel free to think about how you want to express yourself. And, and probably the、um, experience that、uh, Uh, myself, Daniel, and Edgar, we all we three shared with you today、uh, really reflect the fact that our sensitivity, our personality will have an impact, positive or negative, on who is going to contact us. Yes. And who is going to stay with us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> but they first have to contact you, you know. Well, they do, and they come with the oh, the, what a fantastic statement by Winnicott, and then they disappear. <laughs> <laughs> 
or they come yeah. to me thinking that I'm Jungian and then yeah, they disappear. Yeah, and they don't show up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not Jungian. <laughs> nothing wrong with that. Yeah, well, nothing that's, wrong that's with being approach. a Jungian, but I honestly have no training whatsoever in Jungian analysis. Well, we read a few articles at NPAP. Well, maybe you did. I did not. No. I don't recall <laughs> I, I, I'm sure I did. You sure you did? There, okay. were, there was a class, yeah, we had to read a few younger articles, and yeah, it, mm. I did, it did not resonate with me. Mm -hmm. uh, that's for uh, another story. I guess this is it for today. I think it is. Glad that you invited me to share some of my thoughts after your conversation with Tanil. Well, you're welcome, Edgar. I didn't want to leave you off the hook also. Not to mention that you mentioned my name a few times during that podcast. Well, Edgar I is know. not here. Uh, I know. <laughs> I wanted to shame you. Yeah, that's the, yes, you were shaming me. It didn't work. Anyhow. <laughs> oh, too bad. <laughs> I'll do better next time. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay okay so anyway if you liked it give us five stars if you didn't as always don't abstain yes and uh, see you next month next month until then bye bye bye